Let's open the Word of God again to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As I told you last Lord's Day, it's a shame in certain respects that in 2 Corinthians, the last four chapters, 10, 11, 12, and 13, are spent with the Apostle Paul defending himself against the critics that were at the church in Corinth. But he did so, and he did so here in chapter 1, as he explained why he hadn't come to see them for the trouble that arose in Asia in verses 8 through 10, and for his desire to have mercy on them by not arriving when he was so unhappy with that church. But they did clear up matters, as the Bible tells us, and so we can be thankful for that. He says, you've altogether cleared yourselves in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in this very book. Without any further introduction at all, let's just consider some examples of Jesus as our yea and amen. I gave you two very simple ones, and one is Genesis chapter 8, that there'll be seed time and harvest, spring and summer, hot and cold, as long as the earth stands. And God promised that in his heart, and it's recorded by Moses there in Genesis chapter 8, but all things are upheld by the power of Jesus Christ. So that was transferred over to the Lord Jesus Christ who upholds all things, and by him all things consist. Then, we use the simple example of chapter 9 of Genesis, that there would be a bow in the clouds. And who puts that bow in the clouds but the same one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the Lord Jesus Christ again. Right. Then, we looked at Titus chapter 1. And let's go look at that one again just momentarily before we go to a fourth one. Titus chapter 1, and this was God's promise of eternal life before the world began. What a glorious sentence from the Apostle Paul to tell us about things that happened before there was an earth. We, we know. We are given secret information called mysteries in the Bible about things like this that God promised eternal life before the world began. So his creation of the world, his creation of the Garden of Eden, his creation of the devil, his allowing the devil into the Garden of Eden, none of that was a surprise to him at all, was it? Because he had already promised eternal life before the world began, before he created the devil or the earth or the Garden of Eden, before he allowed the devil in. He had already planned a drama in which he would get all the glory by allowing willful creatures to sin against him, and then he would save some of them for the display of his glory and grace and mercy, and he would display his wrath and power on the rest of them. And so when we read things like this, we want to be able to see it in perspective that God wasn't surprised by any of the things that took place in Eden. The hope of eternal life is based on God's promise before the world was ever created because He chose us in Christ before the world began. Now, when He chose us in Christ, and I don't want to chase this very long, but a few seconds, when He chose us in Christ, there was no Jesus the Messiah. There was only the Word of God. And so it was a choice by covenant in one that by covenant would come to be our Savior because He also chose us in Him, and we didn't exist. But we existed in the purpose of God, 
and we were already confirmed in his covenant as the beneficiaries of the everlasting covenant. And so we're told that, that these tremendous promises way back in eternity hinge by 2 Corinthians 1.20 on the performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God, when he promises eternal life, he viewed men as sinners. But God cannot acquit. Nahum 1.3. God cannot clear. Exodus 34.7. God cannot clear the guilty. He cannot acquit the wicked. So what is he going to do since he promised eternal life? He is going to send one that is mighty to save that we have sung about today. And the Lord Jesus Christ would die and put that promise into force. Those words, into force, are Bible words. Do you know where they might be found? They're relative to the last will and testament of God in Hebrews chapter 9, around verse 15, where God's will is put into force by the death of the testator. Otherwise, a testament or a last will and covenant is of no force while the testator liveth. The testator has to die. That's not this particular point. Right now, we just want to look at this verse and feast on the words of the first three verses of Titus chapter 1. God that promised eternal life in verse 2, He cannot lie, and He promised it before the world began, and He gave men like Paul the opportunity and the privilege to preach that message, to make it manifest. It hadn't been disclosed. The world operated without the full revelation of that knowledge until the Apostle Paul and his companions in preaching. Then they revealed it to men. They wrote it down, and we know it. So we look back 2,000 years and see Paul and Titus and the other gospel writers having written down the mysteries that God revealed to us that for 4,000 years were unknown. And we weren't even there to hear about the eternal counsel that God had. But he told us about it in the scriptures, and we rejoice in it. God promised eternal life in Christ when he chose us in him according to his own purpose and grace. God cannot lie. We learned that in 2 Corinthians 1.18. But God is truth. Jesus is truth. And Jesus is the yea and amen. We want to build a habit right here. A habit to locate the yea and amen of your faith. When you read these three verses and you read about the faith of God's elect, there you see God's election. And you read about the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. I want to remind you that you learned in 1 Timothy a use of the word godliness. Do you remember? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And what is it? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. And so it's the acknowledging of these great things that the world doesn't understand, doesn't believe, makes fun of, ridicules, but we know that this is the gospel in a nutshell, as one of our brothers teaches his family. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. I hope you can see the development of the three verses without me taking any longer on it. Remember this. For all the promises of God, in Him are yea, 
and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God. But you've got this fifth little part of that verse, by us. Because it was by the apostles, it was by Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus that the Corinthians got to hear things they would otherwise never have known. Things that were not yet written because Paul had not yet written Titus. And so you can see the three verses develop that one little verse of 2 Corinthians 1.20. God's promises are here. In Christ, who sent Paul to preach it, who's God our Savior, in Christ, the yea and the amen, under the glory of God, everything is to the glory of God, including Paul's ministry, by us. They got to reveal it to others. And so here we are, the beneficiaries. 2,000 years later, they Jews, we Gentiles, we in the Western Hemisphere, they in a different one, and here we are. And we're so blessed to have this being fulfilled in our lives. If God promised eternal life before the world began, then He had already purposed, as the world did begin, as there was an Adam, then there was an Eve, then there was the devil talking to Eve, who talked to Adam, and they sinned together. If He promised eternal life before the world began, then He had that intention and plan all along. So we should not be surprised to find a promise of God in Genesis chapter 3. And you know this one, but let's look at it anyway, just for a couple of minutes. Genesis chapter 3, and it's a promise of God made to the devil. Now the devil was the instigator and had the power of death over us by getting our first parents to sin a particular sin against God that resulted in the penalty of death being three deaths being applied to all of us. So in the New Testament, when it says that Jesus Christ destroyed the power of the devil who had the power of death over us, it's not that the devil has power like that himself. It's that the devil got us under God's legal authority and the implications and consequences of sinning against God where the penalty was death. God used, the devil, excuse me, the devil in this respect used God against us because God was going to keep his word and that is in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the devil got our first parents to eat and therefore brought death on them. But there's a second Adam and it's not for them, not right now, we only have one. We're in Genesis 3, there's only one. But there's a promise of another. And that's what we're looking for, are promises of God, that in Him are yea and in Him amen, to the glory of God. This whole scheme is to the glory of God, that there would be an earth, that there would be angelic beings, and that there would be human beings. And these human beings would sin, God would save His elect from among them, the angels that sinned would be reserved in chains unto eternal torment. There wouldn't be a Savior provided for them. And this drama develops right here as God speaks to the devil. In verse 14, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise its heel. 
No, his heel. So we've got a singular male pronoun referring to some man that is coming, some male that is coming, the seed of the woman that would give the devil a fatal blow and the devil would merely give this male coming a heel blow. We reject the Roman Catholic Church in their Dewey Reims version of the Bible that they published to try to combat the Reformation. They wrote Genesis 3.15, She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. It is blasphemy. But we have our Word of God. They have their 73 books. We have our 66 books. And we rely on the man Christ Jesus, not on the woman, the mother of the man Christ Jesus. They make Mary a co-redemptrix and a mediatrix between God and men, and we only know one. There is one mediator between God and men, not a woman, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 In the Garden of Eden, God foretold the devil's ruin by the woman's seed. Who fulfilled that promise? You are going to get a fatal wound, and all you will do is cause a minor wound to the one that's coming to destroy you. Who fulfilled? Who made it come to pass? Who's the yea and amen of that promise? This is God speaking to the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great yea and amen of that promise. He told his apostles, the devil hath nothing in me. He wrestled with that devil. He resisted him. Angels came and comforted him, but he resisted that devil by himself in Matthew chapter 4 in resisting the three temptations. Our first parents went down with one temptation. He resisted three, and they were serious temptations. The devil used scripture in one of them by quoting from Psalm 91, but our Lord Jesus Christ is the yea and amen of our religion. Could he go down? No, he didn't go down. It's the impeccable Lord Jesus Christ that is our Savior, and we trust in him. Our religion is absolutely settled and sure. We have a rock and an anchor for our souls. We have a refuge for consolation that we can run to whenever we are in trouble. There is no trouble, as a young daughter said to me at break time, there is no trouble or situation that you can get yourself into in life that the Lord doesn't have a promise for that is made good by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are safe and secure. And that's what we want to learn from that 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him amen, unto the glory of God by us. This is the gospel. The gospel brings the news that God has promised good things that Jesus Christ has put into force that we can rely on. Totally. So God told the devil his future outcome by promise, and the Lord Jesus Christ brought it to pass. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will cast the devil into the lake of fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the first eight verses describe that judgment, that we shall judge angels with the Lord Jesus. Satan would cost the woman's seed some trouble, but he would cause the devil a fatal wound. How truthful is the Lord Jesus Christ? How honest is he in all circumstances? I want to I give you a, a novel, not virus, 
but a new way of looking at Jesus Christ and his honesty and sincerity and truthfulness. The devils knew that if they asked him a question, they would get a true answer. Is that in the Bible? Did they know Jesus? Did they know that Jesus would always tell them the truth? Did they ask him the biggest question that bothers them in their existence? Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You say, Pastor, you are trying to find yay and amen everywhere. You're right. I want to find it everywhere. Whether I preach them all to you or not, doesn't matter. I still get to have my fun finding as many as I can. And I enjoy this one. The devil's the devil himself is a what from the beginning? He's a liar from the beginning, and he's the father of all lies. So when he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, could, should, the Lord lie to him? He's a liar. He knows the Lord's going to tell him the truth. And there's one question that bothers them a lot. Do you know what that question is? Is it time? Is it time for you to throw us into the lake of fire? They, they are worried about that. We're not worried about it. We glory in that fact of what he's going to do the devil and his angels. And we're going to do it with him. Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. He's in the synagogue at Capernaum. And there's a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit in verse 23. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Isn't that something that the devils themselves know that the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, in his state of humiliation, in his state of humiliation, is the yea and amen of God. They know that he will destroy them. They know that the fatal wound is by him of them. And all they can do is cry with a loud voice. Because what are they going to do to the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's Matthew chapter, I mean that's Mark chapter 1, verse 24. You flip over a few chapters to the Gadarene, and in chapter 5, Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. And this Gadarene cried with a loud voice in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7 and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him his name, and he told him. But what I'm, what I'm going after right now is, they knew that Jesus would tell them the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is faithful and true. And all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen. So he didn't say one thing to the devil, and then another thing happened. The devils knew that they could claim that promise of character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we claim that kind of character of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him in everything He said to us? We should. We should. They knew who He was, and they knew who imposters were. They know what religion is true, and they know what religions are false. Paul said that the Gentiles, when they offer sacrifices to their gods, are offering sacrifices to devils. And the other Jesus is a creation of the devil. The other Jesus is not a creation of theologians, though they are tools of the devil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
it says that the other Jesus and the other spirit and the other gospel is by the false apostles of the devil himself who show themselves to be ministers of light and ministers of righteousness, but they are not. We have the great apostle and the high priest of our profession is the Lord Jesus Christ. They asked him questions knowing that he would tell them the truth. And they knew that he was the holy son of God with great authority and power to destroy them. That the universe, including God's dealings with them, would be through the man, Christ Jesus. They knew he was God's son. They knew that he would, could and would torment them. He knew, they knew that he would destroy them. And so we trust in him. The powers of darkness, I've preached it to you before. The powers of darkness are real. They're around us all the time. They're in this world. You should be able to look with relative ease and see the powers of darkness in some men as they fight against God-ordained authority of our government and of ordinary society. That's devil possession and devil influence that we see all around us. But there is a winner in this conflict, and it's the Lord Jesus himself. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Now these things I said opening up our first service this morning. But we want to look at this. Hebrews 3. Remember in the book of Hebrews, you've got 13 chapters. And these 13 chapters are going to show converted Jews. Hebrews. Abraham was a Hebrew. Descendants of Abraham. They're converted. They're baptized. They're beloved brethren in this epistle of Paul to these Hebrew Christians. They're saved, converted Jews. Each chapter is going to deal with some aspect of their religion that they got from Moses that had been in existence for 1,500 years. Some aspect of their religion they got from Moses that Jesus was better. And so chapter after chapter... Jesus is better. It is by far my favorite book of the Bible because it's one of the simplest and its theme is singular. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior even to all of the detailed religion of the Old Testament, which was God's religion. That temple was God's house. That law was God's law. That covenant that Moses made and sprinkled blood on the people, that was God's old covenant. The priesthood was God's. But Jesus is better than every one of them. You know, the book starts out, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Well, that was nice. The Old Testament church had prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So for a couple of verses, it's Jesus is better than the prophets. Then starting at verse 4 and working our way down through the chapter and all of chapter 2, Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter 4, Jesus is better than Joshua. Chapter 5, Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because he's a priest made forever after the order of Melchizedek and so forth and so on. It's a wonderful book. It is not that difficult. There's a great work has been made that is on our website for you to understand this particular book of the Bible. 
this sixth illustration of Jesus being the great yea and amen of our religion is to compare him to Moses. Verse 1 of chapter 3, and I hope that many of you read this last evening. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Notice the words. Compare religions. Consider the leaders and the mediators of a religion, of two religions. Compare. The apostle and high priest of our profession is Christ Jesus. It's not Aaron. It's Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, Christ Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Let's start at the end and work backward. You are Christ's house, and Christ is your high priest and your apostle if you hold fast the confidence. Why am I preaching this series of messages? Two things to build in you. Faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. What is faith? It is to believe, trust, and have confidence in Christ unto the end. I don't care what end you want to think of for the moment, because all are covered, because this is the end of the world. All the way until Judgment Day, we may trust in Jesus Christ. It was the end of the Jewish nation. It's the end of your life. When you're on your deathbed, when you're facing that curtain, that dark curtain you've never been through before, and no one has gone through it before and told you about it, one man did. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He told you about it, and he's been through it before you. Are you going to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope? Do you have confidence? Do you fully trust and believe in God for all things in this life and eternity? Is that confidence such that it gives you hope that you have a certain expectation of good things that are coming and nothing can interrupt those things? And so certain are those things that it causes you to rejoice. So if you're not a happy Christian, then you're not a Christian because you're not rejoicing with hope firm unto the end. Firm unto the end. Are we solidly established? Do you know why we have a church? One of the great reasons? You wanted to end with Hebrews chapter 10, young man. You went to Hebrews chapter 10, where we were told to provoke each other to love and to good works. That the purpose of the church and purpose of assemblies is not just to hear a pastor, but for us to be able to come together and push each other to be better Christians and to hold fast the profession of our faith. Did you read us those things? Well, I'm reading them from another part of Hebrews, where it says in verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm, all those words are important. Do you fully trust? 
there are Christians distracted by these little things going on in our country and other countries. Why are they distracted by them? They're non-events. The real event is death. The real event is the judgment of the world. But we can have confidence and trust and firmness in facing even those events and do it with joy if we fully trust the man Christ Jesus who already went through death for us. We are accepted in the beloved. So we are safe and secure as it can be. So we are the ones, if we fulfill that description of our character and conduct at the end of verse 6, we are the ones that verses 1 through 5 are about. We are the house of God. We are the household of faith. We are the family of God. And Christ as a son of God is over that house. And Moses was just a servant to it. Just a servant that was temporary for a little time of 1,500 years with now an outdated, antiquated, ready-to-be-thrown-away system of covenant works. And we have the real thing in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you read down through these verses, it tells us to consider what gives us the firmness in spite of any circumstances. What gives us confidence? What gives us hope? Are you with me on these words from verse 6? Confidence, firmness, hope, and then joy that flows from that. The martyrs died joyfully. The martyrs sang. The martyrs blessed. The martyrs said, you don't have to chain me here. I can stand here. My confidence in Christ, my trust, my firmness is such that causes me joy. We heard those testimonies and we heard that joy and could hardly relate to it because we can complain and we can murmur and we've never experienced anything like a martyr. Now we back up through it and it says, consider who's in charge of this religion. Who's the leader of this religion? It's Christ Jesus. How does he compare to Moses? Moses was just a servant in the house and the one who built the house is the Son of God. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. So what does Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 tell us? All the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Paul got to preach a message of hope. He got to preach a message of confidence that we can hold firm unto the end with joy. We should sing about heaven with joy. When we think about death, if our hearts are right, we should think about the matter with joy. Chapter 4. Joshua was great. Joshua took the land of Canaan in just five years. Seven nations. Sixty cities. It's an incredible accomplishment of Joshua to replace Moses and to take the people of Israel. But I want you to think about Joshua. If I said Joseph, I'm sorry. I meant Joshua. Our Lord Jesus Christ can never be deceived. Was Joshua deceived? Do you remember the Gibeonites coming to him and making him swear an oath to them before their God, before Jehovah, that they would not hurt them, that they were from a very distant country? And so Joshua swore with an oath and then found out that they were nearby neighbors. That terrible story in the Bible, nothing like that happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those Gibeonites were a problem. They used them as servants in the tabernacle. They used them as servants in the temple. 
They caused Saul a temptation to want to show the Lord his zeal by killing the Gibeonites. Many years later, they were a temptation. But our Lord Jesus Christ has never done anything like that. And so even compared to Joshua, there's something better. But here, that's not the argument of Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4's argument is this. What you just read that Moses could not get the church to the rest of God of Canaan in chapter 3. So chapter 4 begins with verse 1. Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it. And what the apostle does, and I've got to explain this in two minutes, what the apostle does in some of his tightest reasoning in the Bible is to point out that there are three rests. The first rest was the seventh day that God gave his church, because that's when it was revealed on Mount Sinai, God gave his church the seventh day as a rest. And it says that here in these verses. Verse 4, he spake in a certain place the seventh day on this wise. That's Genesis chapter 2, it's Exodus chapter 20, it's Deuteronomy chapter 5. But, the apostle points out, we have in the book of Psalms that comes much later a promise of rest in verse 5. He says in verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest, that Jesus in verse 8 of Hebrews 4 is not Jesus of Nazareth, it is Joshua, the second rest of God. The first rest was the seventh day of the week. The second rest was the land of Canaan, where their houses were built, their wells dug, their vineyards planted, the houses furnished, and city walls. All of that was done. So it was a rest, because they were slaves in Egypt. Now they would be homeowners in Canaan without doing anything because God provided for them. It was a rest. But the apostle here argues again. That rest took place under Joshua. Joshua, when it comes from the Old Testament into the New Testament, is spelled Jesus, because Joshua equals Jesus. Jehovah is Shua. Jehovah is the Savior. And so in verse 8, if Jesus had given them rest, that is, if Joshua in the book of Joshua, had given them that second rest in the land of Canaan, and that was the fulfillment of God's promises, then why in Psalm 95 is there a rest offered, if they shall enter into my rest? For those of you that love logic and want to see connections, there is no superior to the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. They're fantastic verses. So he reasons... Listen, we've got Genesis way over, it's written way over here. It's written about a time way back there where God gave the rest of the seventh day. Then, thousands of years later, or hundreds of years later, uh, 1,500 years, a long time, God gave rest through Joshua, Moses' successor. But still, David, way after that, wrote in Psalm 95 that there's another rest. And so the apostle reasons that... Uh, Joshua didn't give them the rest. The Lord Jesus Christ did. What is the Lord Jesus Christ rest? He saved us by himself, and we get to rest in his finished work of salvation. And I hope that you remember, without me preaching the book of Hebrews right now, that when we come to verse 12, 
when the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that verse is not put there to terrify us. That verse is put there to comfort us. Do you remember that? I have tried to teach you the truth about this well-known verse. That verse is there to comfort us. That verse, that He is able to divide between the soul and the spirit, that He's able to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart, make your thoughts and intents right, and He sees every single one of them. There's no creature not manifest in His sight. All things are naked and opened, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Remember this? It's a number of years. Verse 14 doesn't say, seeing then that we have a great and consuming judge in heaven waiting to burn you up. It says, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, let us hold fast the profession of our faith on the good grounds that He has promised us a rest and He sees our heart's desire and intent within us even though our flesh is weak. Watch. Verse 15, for, for we have an high priest that is going to curse us into eternal fire. No. For we have an high priest which cannot be touched with the feel with the feelings of our, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. This whole passage is to teach us boldness through the yea and the amen of the promises of God. And what is the promise of God? I have rest for my children. What is that rest? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'll do it all for you. Rest in me, trust in me. And so Jesus is greater than Joshua because Joshua got them a rest, but it wasn't the rest that counted with God because David wrote after Joshua. I hope you can see it. It's beautiful. Three rests. First one is just the day of the week. Big deal. Second one is Canaan. Big deal. You don't want to go draw water. You like turning a faucet. And, and you, you probably average around 20 faucets per house. It's amazing what we have. We're so much better off than Canaan, but we get to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and have a high priest like this who was tempted in all points like as we are, but never sinned, but he knows about our temptations. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and so he understands when we labor and struggle with something, and he's able to take it to God and be our succorer. When we go to God, we can go to the throne of grace with boldness and find grace to help in time of need. And all of it through the second Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, the yea and the amen of our profession. Chapter 6. You say, what is chapter 5 about? The same thing as chapter 6. You say, can you prove that to me? Okay, I will. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. And he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What place did he say that? Psalm 110. Look at the last verse of chapter 6. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So chapters 5 and 6 are showing that Jesus is greater than any priest from the Levitical priesthood of Aaron. And that the promise of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, was made in a special way with an oath. And so Hebrews 6 
is God swore with an oath to our father Abraham that we would be blessed by Jesus Christ. Because the oath is, surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in thy seed. And that is us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 8, tells us that promise to Abraham was free justification by faith preached to Gentiles throughout the world by the apostles. But what I want you to notice here is that the promise of Christ, who is the seed of Abraham? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That promise of Christ and his blessing upon Gentiles was confirmed with an oath because we are dealing with God's promises are yea, meaning yes, indeed. And they are amen, meaning truly, verily, that God would raise up a seed of Abraham that would bless Gentiles in America in 2020 in another hemisphere. But he wanted to enhance it. So he swore with an oath. God cannot lie, and he swore. He gave two immutable proofs or witnesses of his blessing on Abraham. Look at verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. The Christian life. I was written this week that I was a heretic because in a proverb that, commentary that I gave, that commentary said that Christians ought to have good works in order to confirm their salvation. Well, that person just went off saying that I was teaching sinless perfection. How in the world they got sinless perfection out of anything I write, I don't understand at all. But I want you to notice that when God is writing Christians and Paul is writing Christians and he speaks to them about their hope and about their faith, it takes some diligence. And Peter would do the same thing. Wherefore, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Notice verse 11. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. There's the end again. Let's never give up. Let's never backslide. Let's continue forward. Let's be firm. Let's have hope. Let's be rejoicing in our hope. Let's do it with full assurance of our faith, not partial assurance. I don't want to see you fearful on your deathbed. I don't want you to see me fearful on my deathbed. We want to be firm to the end. We want to have full assurance of our faith. And so, be not slothful, verse 12, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It takes trust in God and it takes cheerfully enduring negative events to eventually inherit the promises. For when God made promise, that's what we're dealing with, isn't it? For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him amen, and the glory of God by us. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, amen. saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Where's Abraham? He's in heaven. Are you sure he's in heaven? What's heaven called after he got there? Abraham's bosom. That's sweet. Verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater. When you swear in court, you know, put your left hand in the Bible, raise your right hand to heaven, 
and you swear by God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's not done all the time anymore, but it's still done in some places. That is because you're appealing to the highest authority that you know. And so verse 16 is telling, explaining that to us. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. There should be no strife or doubt or questioning or controversy about the great mystery of godliness. God was manifest in Christ Jesus, and He is the yea and amen, and God swore that He would fulfill all of His promise for the elect through Abraham's seed. It wasn't just enough that God couldn't lie. God also swore with an oath for our benefit. Verse 17, wherein God, knowing that an oath is to end all doubt and confusion, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. That's His everlasting counsel of saving the elect, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We have the hope of heaven laid out before us and we can flee to it. We can run to Christ. Save me, Lord, and he will save. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. We can flee to the refuge of of the promise of God that is in Christ Jesus, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That's yea and amen, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is already there in the presence of God. We can trust in Him, run to Him, because He has fulfilled the promise of God made to Abraham and his seed. That seed came in the fullness of time, and that seed did everything God had commanded and charged Him to do. And on that basis... And that basis alone, all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen to the comfort and the consolation and the anchor and the firmness and the confidence and the assurance and the full assurance to the very end. Let nothing move us. Ever. And that is why we have a church. That is why we have a church to encourage each other in the Lord, to encourage each other in faith, to encourage each other in hope, to encourage each other. Jesus Christ has done it all, and a rest has been provided. All we need to do is run to Him to find refuge for our souls. And we have an anchor. You're not, you shouldn't be tossed, because He's our anchor, and He's our forerunner. He's already there. He already went through the curtain of death, and He showed us how to do it. Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. He did it by sheer faith and trust in God. We get to do it by faith and trust in God and knowing that Jesus is our intercessor on the other side, already there for us, that will never turn one away. All the promises of God, simple as seed time and harvest, it does make bread. A bow in the clouds, a promise to Abraham, better than Moses, better than Joshua, through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.